Well, hey, good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you guys for being at church today. Don't you guys love that element we do in worship sometimes where people read scripture over us? Um, I, my heart's already been so encouraged. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, open them up to John 13. We're going to be in John 13 this morning. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and we'll get one to you. We have people coming down the aisles. We'll get you a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, please keep that as our gift. But we're going to continue kind of marching through the book of John that we're going to be on all the way through Easter. And um, I've been thinking a lot this week, how do I start this message? How do I kind of explain what's going on? And here's the best way I can do it. Give me your eyes for a second. Um, John 13 is one of those chapters of Scripture that if you really take seriously, and if you study, and if you understand what Jesus is doing, and then if you try to hold your life up against Jesus' example, there is no way that you can't be convicted and challenged. So here, here's what I'm going to say. If you leave here today and you're not convicted, you're not trying. So to start, I think it'd be really, really helpful. Just turn to the person next to you and say, let's not be lame. All right, if you don't get anything out of this message, I am not apologizing for anything. It's all on you being lame. And here's why. Today we are talking about love. And love is in some ways like the most basic concept in the world. And in some ways it's the most difficult and the most elusive. Christians love to talk about love. But what does it actually look like? And if you're taking notes, I've started off with a big question, and it's this. It's do we actually love like Jesus? Does your life, does your love look anything like the love of Christ? Again, Christians love to talk about this. I could show you a thousand books written on this topic, how to love, who to love, what love looks like. And I am convinced that there are many in this room who, if we could be honest with each other, our lives and our love don't look anything like Jesus. We have no idea what it means to truly love like Jesus. And in John 13, we are going to get a perfect framework for what love, Christ-like love, truly looks like. So here's what I want to do. We're going to do it a little bit different. I want to start at verse 34. All right, we're going to jump back to verse 1 in a little bit, but let's start at verse 34 because this is going to set the tone for the entire chapter. Here's what Jesus says. He's talking to his disciples. He says, a new commandment that I give to you is that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So let me quick set the stage here. I don't know if you remember last week, we said that Jesus had entered in to the final week of his life. So he's starting to get very, very intentional with his time and his teaching. Well, in John 13, we've moved all the way to the last night Jesus is with his disciples. This is happening in the upper room, the last supper with the disciples. Judas has already left at this point. He is leaving to go betray Jesus right now. Jesus is getting sold out. This is it. So, so think about it. If you had one last meal with the people you love most, what would you tell them? What would you want to communicate? What would you say? What would be your parting piece of wisdom? Because this is what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, listen, if you don't remember anything else, you have to hear me on this. You need to love one another. And you need to love one another in the same way that I have loved you. And it's by this that people will know that you are mine. Church, do you feel the weight of that? Jesus is saying people will know we belong to Jesus based on our love. It's not on us acing a theology exam. 
It's not based on us worshiping the right way or looking the right way or being good enough or moral enough. He goes, listen, the indicator that you really love me and you're really my people and you're really my family is how you love. Like, do you feel the weight of that statement? This is a massive deal. We can't afford to get this wrong. All right, but here's the amazing thing about Jesus and God's word. Do you know that Jesus is never going to call us to do something without telling us exactly how to do it? Like one of the things I love about the Bible, there's no riddles or mysteries that we've got to unlock or solve for ourselves. And what we're going to see in John 13 is actually this entire chapter is Jesus modeling what this love looks like to his disciples. He's already showing them what it looks like before he even makes the commandment. So do me a favor, go back up to the top of the chapter, look at verse 1. Follow along, I'm going to read through verse 11. It says this, it says, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them till the end. And then during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands... And that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper and he laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and then to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter who said, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Then Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was about to betray him. And that's why he said, not all of you are clean. Okay, here's the first really important thing we learn about love this weekend. It's this. It's that love is a choice of our will. It's not just a feeling. Love is a choice of our will. It's not just a feeling. Do you see the progression John gives here in the first four verses? It's actually quite brilliant. All right, look at verse one again. It said, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, it says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them till the end. So Jesus made the choice to love his disciples. Then look at verse two. It says, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So Jesus chooses to love his disciples. The next thing John says is, oh, by the way, Judas is still there at this time. And then we read in verse 4, Jesus gets up and he makes the choice to wash his disciples' feet, Judas included. So Jesus makes the choice to love his disciples. Judas is there. And Jesus still chooses to love and serve. And by the way, I, I need you to hear this. This could not have been an easy moment for Jesus. Judas isn't the only problem. He's going to leave and betray, but all of the other disciples in different ways are going to fail Jesus on this very night. Peter is going to deny him. Some disciples are going to run away. Other disciples, when Jesus is asking them to pray for him and to care for him and to lift him up to God, they're going to fall asleep. They're going to get selfish. They're going to bail. They're going to give up. Everyone is going to fail Jesus in this moment. And Jesus knows that, and he makes the choice to love. So he washes their feet. He serves them. Can I be really honest with you? 
I've been really convicted this week because I've been thinking to myself, if I was Jesus, I don't know if I could have tolerated Judas in that room. I'm not sure I could have looked him in the eyes, let alone washed his feet. Jesus made a choice. Now, please hear me. I'm not trying to minimize feelings. Feelings are real and they matter, but love is a choice. And one of the problems we have in our culture is that we believe that love is primarily a feeling. We confuse love with attraction, or we believe this lie that love is never going to be difficult. One of the things I do as a pastor is I meet with a lot of young couples who are dating or engaged, and Mary and I will meet with them and counsel them and try to give wisdom into their relationship. And we have seen this pattern develop over the last years as we've been doing ministry here. Um, When a couple first starts dating, I think I've talked about this before, the first three months or six months, there's a honeymoon period, isn't there? And it's like, man, I have found the best person in the world. I love this person. They're great. It's full Jerry Maguire. They complete me. They smell like butterflies and rainbows. Everything's perfect. Nothing could be wrong, right? And then like three months or six months in, you realize, oh, shoot, I'm dating a sinner too. And they didn't smell like rainbows yesterday. They smelled like garlic, And what they said hurt my feelings, and there's been some conflict, and now it's getting difficult. And a lot of times I'll meet with people who are freaking out. It's like, man, it's not as easy as it was when we were first dating. And I was like, of course it's not, moron. Love is a choice. It's not a promise that it's always going to be smooth. It's great, but you've got to make the choice. Am I going to continue to pursue and continue to forgive and continue to hang in there? Here's a a great way to say it. I think this is the best way I can communicate this. Um, Feelings are a great warning light, but they're a terrible pilot. Feelings are really, really good and helpful to let us know when something's wrong, when something's off. If you think of a plane, they're the light that goes off or the alarm that goes off when the fuel pressure is low in the engine. But you don't want feelings to drive the plane. So this is how it plays out in my life. Um, There's some days where I wake up and I just feel grumpy. And it's like, I don't want to be kind and caring to Mary. I don't really want to engage with my kids. I want to do my own thing. And by the way, that should be a warning light to my heart that something's off. Hey, is there unconfessed sin in my life? Is there conflict with Mary and I that we haven't talked about or resolved? Why do I feel this way? Or am I just being a selfish jerk, right? It's a warning light to be like, hey, Cal, something's going on, but I can't let those feelings drive the plane because if I do, I'm going to devastate the people I love most. They're a warning light. They're not a pilot. Please hear me. I'm going to say this very, very clearly. I don't believe people fall out of love with one another. I think people choose to stop loving each other sacrificially. They choose to be selfish They make the choice day after day after day to choose themselves. And can I tell you a secret? When you make the choice to love, your feelings will follow. It's true. I want to tell you a funny story. So if you know my family, you know that I have four kids. I have two daughters, Nora and Ashley. They're 13 years old, and they are identical twins. Like, they are identical, identical. They have kids that have gone to school and have been in their class for eight years, still cannot tell them apart. My dad, their grandpa, still bats under 50% in getting their names right. Don't even know how it's possible. Like if he was blind, he would do better potentially. Um, They look exactly alike and they always have. 
And when they were two, we had uh, our oldest son, Bo, he's 10 now, and the wildest thing happened. When Bo was two or three months old, Mary and I very quickly understood that Bo could tell our girls apart perfectly. And the way we knew that he could tell them apart was because he loved Ashley and he hated Nora. (laughs) When Ashley would come around, he would smile and he would kick and he would coo. And when Nora would come, he was swinging for her face every time. And he would scream and he would throw a temper tantrum. And I remember being really conflicted because I'm like, man, my son might be a genius and he might also be evil, right? (laughs) Again, he's 10, jury's still out. I'll let you know when I know. But it was the wildest thing. And Mary could sense that there was just some tension growing between uh, Bo and Nora because Nora's like, I'm kind of out on this little brother thing. He's not nice to me. He's mean. And she could tell that this relationship was hard. So Mary came up with this brilliant idea. And for about two weeks, she just had Nora actively serve Bo. If Bo needed to take a bottle, she'd have Nora help with that. If Bo needed his diaper changed, she would be there while mom changed the diaper and help get the diaper or or help with what she needed. If Bo needed a toy, Nora would get it. And then guess what happened over about a week or two weeks or three weeks? You saw both of their hearts soften towards one another. Bo started to smile and love Nora because Nora was choosing to love him. And Nora was like, oh, I do love Bo. And this is fun. And their, their relationship completely did a 180. Because Mary helped Nora make the choice to love, even when it wasn't easy. Which leads me to our next point. It's this. It's that love is you before me. Love is you before me. So at our church, we have these sayings that we like people to memorize. We might call them harvest-isms. And it's to help people understand complex topics. And this is one of them. We define love as you before me. Do me a favor, turn to your neighbor and say, love is you before me. It is choosing the welfare and the needs of those around you over ourselves. And listen to me, we get this primarily from Philippians 2. It says this, it says, let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So it's saying Jesus did not have to do what he did, but he made the choice to serve us, to come to earth, to be born in the likeness of men. We are called to have this same mindset, to seek others' interests over our own. Okay, so here's what blows my mind about John 13. When Jesus washes the disciples' feet, I don't think I would have had the presence of mind to even be thinking about the disciples in that moment. Jesus is about to die. He's about to be betrayed. He is about to be beaten to the point of death. He's about to have to carry a cross through the streets of Jerusalem as people shout at him, kick at him, spit at him, and make fun of him. He is going to be spit on as he dies with people saying, oh, you think you're the king of the Jews? Get yourself off of this cross. He could have gotten himself off of that cross and he endured it. Like, man, I struggle. If I know I have like a bad meeting at seven o'clock at night, that can dominate my thoughts all day. Anyone else like that? Okay, Jesus knows his death is coming. And guess what he does? He's not thinking about himself. He's not pacing around. He's not having a a panic attack or freaking out. He's saying, you know what? I'm going to think about my disciples right now. 
I'm going to engage them. I'm going to serve them. Okay, here's the best way I can explain this. Love is a mindset. In any situation we walk into, we have a choice. I can have the mindset, who can I help? Who can I bless? Who can I encourage? Or I can walk into that same situation and say, who's going to bless me? Who's going to encourage me? Who's going to love me? Right? We've got a choice. Am I going to put others' interests at first place? Or are my interests going to live at first place? So one of the things about being a pastor and leading a church is you have to live with a certain level of criticism. I don't know if you all know this, but church people have a tendency to let their opinions known. Did you know that? Did you know that that's a thing? And there is a level of criticism that comes with the job. People can criticize what songs we sing. People will criticize how loud we sing those songs. People will criticize us when the donut that they like, we didn't have that weekend. It's like, that's not our thing. It's a DW thing. Leave us alone. Um, it can be preaching. You have to have a thick skin. And you've got to be willing to listen. You've got to be humble. And you've got to be willing to listen. But that being said, there is one critique that I have no patience for that I don't listen to. And I get this critique semi-regularly. It's this. People will come to the church and be like, I love Harvest and I love the worship. And I love the preaching. I just don't think your church is very friendly. I don't have patience for that. You know why? First of all, because I know y'all and y'all are super friendly. I love our church. I think our church is warm and inviting and engaging. Um, but the other reason I don't accept that criticism is because I think it is inherently selfish. A couple months ago, I was at party with the pastors and an older man came up. He was probably in his 60s. And it was the same story. He's like, you know, I've been going to church for 60 years and I've known the Lord my whole life. And I love Harvest. I love how you preach the word and I love your worship. But man, I've been coming for like two or three months and no one said hi to me. And I said, let me challenge you on that. I said, when you enter the building, there's no one at the door greeting you, shaking your head and saying, good morning. Oh yeah, well, people do that. And I'm like, okay, you realize they get to church 45 minutes early and they set up and they plan their day around how they can serve you by being welcoming. And like, you've been to our cafe, right? Has anyone ever served you your free donut and your free coffee? Oh yeah, people have done that too. That seems pretty nice and warm and welcoming. I think we're doing okay. Hey, when you come into the sanctuary, is there someone at the door giving you your notes? And, and are you helped sit, getting sat down if you need to? And do people say hi to you then? Oh yeah, I guess so. Hey, during the service, when we say, hey, greet the person next to you, no one's ever said hi? Oh no, people shake my hand and say hello. But I just want it to be more organic. And I'm like, dude, what's wrong with you? Like, does everyone literally exist to serve you? Do you really believe that everyone should stop what they're doing to make you feel special? And I'm like, you're the one that says you're a mature believer. You've been saved for 60 years. You should know better. Hey, if you want people to be friendly, be friendly. Who have you encouraged? Who have you prayed for? Who have you engaged? Who have you taken out to coffee? Right, but so easily our mindset can be, hey, what is everyone doing for me? It's not making the choice to love. We have this choice in any given situation, whether it be church or work or family or in our neighborhood. And church, listen to me. This is where we have to battle our flesh because every one of us is predisposed to being self-absorbed and wanting to be at the center. Right again, I have two boys who are in elementary school. They never wake up and are like, man, how can I serve my family today? 
every day, stop being selfish, stop being selfish, stop being selfish. I am fighting that battle with my boys every day because I don't want to have some poor girl do it down the line. The great enemy of love is selfishness. Love is making the choice to elevate and serve others on a daily basis. And here's what I love about love. It never allows you to get complacent or lazy because how you love others is going to change dependent on the season and circumstances. There was a season in my life where we had four kids that were aged four and under. Okay, do you know how I loved Mary in that season? I would come home from work and I'd be like, hey, I'm going to get the kids fed and changed. You go take our dog for a walk. You just need a moment to breathe. So I'm going to take care of them. I'm going to watch them. And I'm just going to give you a moment to either go for a walk or, or go get coffee with a friend. Like I'm just going to sub in and care for these kids because it's all consuming right now. All right now, eight years later, now it's more like, all right, Mayor, how can I love you? Who do you need me to drive where? Right, we had 18 events on our calendar last week. Who do you need me to drive? What game do I have to go to? How can I help you? Like we're basically taxi drivers. And listen, I am by far the finished product, but one of the things I've committed to, and Mary will tell you that this is true if you ask her, every single day I ask my wife, what do you need? How are you doing? How can I help you? Because I love that girl. And I want to be someone who elevates what she needs any given day. How are we doing in this? Love never allows us to get lazy or go through the motions. Okay, here's the third thing we see from the text, it's this. It's that love doesn't shy away from hard conversations. Love doesn't shy away from hard conversations. Look at verse 36. It says, so Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. So there's this weird interaction between Jesus and Peter where I think Peter is starting to sense that this is the end. And he's starting to panic and freak out. And he's like, Jesus, what's going on? Judas just ran out of the room. You're talking about dying. Where are you going? What's happening? And Jesus is like, hey, where I'm going, you can't come with me. I have to do this myself. And Peter goes, that's not acceptable. He goes, I will go with you. I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus kind of makes fun of Peter. He goes, will you really lay down your life for me? You're going to deny me three times before the night is over. And like, imagine being in that room. Couldn't you feel it get awkward after that interaction? Could you other, like, can you imagine the disciples being like, whoa, that got awkward. And I'm sure some of you are thinking right now, like, Jesus, this is your last meal with them. Why not just be chill? Why not just enjoy each other? Why not have it just be, you know, full of good feelings and good vibes? Why are you beating on Peter? You're beating on the guy for the last three years. Why don't you just let him have this moment? Well, see, here's the thing. Jesus loved Peter too much that he wouldn't allow him to get away with lying. He wouldn't sacrifice the truth for the sake of easiness and comfortability. Do you remember last week, what we talked about, about how when we worry what other people think about us, when we worry about how people perceive us, it's actually just self-absorption. Do you remember us talking about that? Well, you can't love people if you need them to like you all the time. Did you know that? 
And sometimes loving someone, sometimes serving someone, sometimes wanting what's best for them takes courage and it takes bravery and it takes uncomfortable honesty. I'm going to love you enough to have you not like me right now. Hey, I love you enough to tell you, you messed that situation up. And it was wrong and it didn't honor the Lord and it shouldn't have gone down that way. Hey, I love you, but don't you ever talk about your wife like that again. That dishonors the Lord. She is the most important thing in your life and she deserves better. And I'm not going to stand around and let you say those things about her. Hey, I love you, but you're lying. And I know it. And you are recreating history to make yourself look better than you actually were. Be humble and be honest and own it. I love you, but I'm worried about you. Jesus loved Peter enough to tell him the difficult truth and to make things uncomfortable. If you are unwilling to have necessary difficult conversations, you need to ask yourself, is it because I actually love them? Or is it because I'm just loving myself and I don't want to not be liked or I just want things to be comfortable? Okay, here's the fourth one. It's that love is our primary identity. Love is our primary identity. Look at verse four again. It says, so Jesus rose from supper and he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And then he came to Simon Peter. So we're going to see another interaction with Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. All right, so something really interesting again is happening. Jesus is washing his disciples' feet, and he gets to Peter, and Peter's like, this isn't right, Jesus. I don't deserve this. You shouldn't be washing my feet. I should be washing yours. I'm uncomfortable with the fact that you're serving me right now. And Jesus goes, hey, Peter, you don't understand what I'm doing. Peter's like, I still don't like this. And Jesus is like, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Jesus is showing him in a picture. He's saying, listen, what I'm about to do for you, it is going to be through my death and through my blood that you are going to be washed clean of your sin. He's like, just like I wash your feet now, I am going to wash your soul with my sacrifice on the cross. And I have to do this for you or you can't have relationship with me and you can't be reconciled to God. Then look at verse nine. I love this. It says, then Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. I love this because Peter's about to have a spectacularly bad night, like one of the worst nights in the history of the world. But he gets this perfectly right. He's like, Jesus, if you're the one that makes me clean, then wash all of me. Jesus, I need you. Right? Listen, this is the gospel. Look at me. You don't clean yourself up to be accepted by God. We were washed by Jesus. He knew us. He knew our failures. He knew our shortcomings. And just like he loved his disciples till the end, he has loved us till the end. And we have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. That's why we worship him. That's why we praise him. Because our identity is not that we're great. It's that we've been loved perfectly. Amen? This is the gospel. And here's what I love. God is unchanging. So here's what that means. 
if he is going to love the disciples in that room, even though they're all about to fail him, if he knew all of our sin and all of our failures and still chooses to love us and die on the cross, do you really think he's going to bail on us now that we're his? No, he's going to keep loving. He's going to keep serving. He's going to keep being present with us and elevating what we need even above himself. Just last night, walking into church, and I start talking to a lady, ask how her, you know, family's doing, and I start, you know, her eyes start to water. And they're just dealing with some tough family transitions. They've got some family that they're close to that's moving away, and it's hard. And so I gather up with her and her husband, and we pray. And it's like, even as we pray, and even as we go through a season of loss or just mourning how relationships change, guess what I know for certain? God's going to give that family everything they need. He's going to show up. He's going to be present. He's going to comfort them. He's going to build them through this because Jesus does not change. There is no one in the universe who has loved you more than Jesus has. And by the way, it's not going anywhere. And it is out of that identity that we are given this new commandment. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You see it there. God loved, so he made the choice to give. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus says, the greatest love ever shown is what I will do for you. So with that in mind, look at verse 34. He says this. He says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. One of my favorite passages in scripture is Hebrews 4. I want to read this. Here's what it says. It says, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast to our confessions. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here's what it's saying. It's saying, listen, no matter what we're going through, we have a high priest in Jesus who knows exactly what it feels like to go what we've gone through so we can go to him knowing he knows what it's like to be us and he can help us. All right, so let's get very, very practical. Who in here has someone in their life that's really difficult to love? Guess what? Jesus knows exactly what that feels like. He's like, dude, I had to put up with 12 of them. (laughs) Right? Hey, who in here knows what it's like to have their love be taken for granted? That hurts, doesn't it? You can go to Jesus. He knows exactly what that feels like. Who in here knows the pain and cost of forgiveness? So does Jesus. We are never left alone to navigate this command to love because we have a high priest who has experienced everything we have and he has conquered it and he has given us his spirit so that we can triumph. He's given us everything we need, church. Okay, so here's the question as we close. It's how do we live this out practically, right? My fear is, is that we leave here and it's like, man, I heard a great message on love and you know Jesus washed the disciples' feet as we remain completely unloving and unchanged. So I wanna give us three practical things we can all do today to be more loving people, to love like Jesus. Here's the first thing you need to do. You need to see yourself clearly. Nothing will change until you have an honest look in the mirror. All right, one more quick story. 
Um, so Mary and I have been watching a show together. It's a documentary, and it's about a very small soccer team in Wales, which is right next to England. It's called Welcome to Wrexham. And it's about the soccer team and the town and how much this town loves this soccer team. And it's like so small, it's not even in the professional league of soccer yet, but it's building its way up there. And it just documents the town and the people and the players and the fans. And one of the people, there's two seasons now. So in the first season, which was last year, they documented a fan. And this fan, he was in his late 20s or early 30s, and he was one of those dudes, you know what I'm talking about, where like the second you see him, you're like, that dude's ready to fight. Right, like that guy just looked rough. He looked angry. He looked upset. He was oftentimes in the bar and he'd get really angry when the soccer team lost. And he started to talk about his personal life. And he's like, yeah, I'm in a really dark place. My wife just left me. Work's not great. I don't get to see my two boys very much at all anymore. And what he was saying is, is this soccer team is the only good thing I have in my life. And I care about this team so much because everything else around me is falling apart. This is the thing that keeps me going. It's like the, the guy was just in rough shape. Well, it's interesting. Season two of the documentary rolls out and um, they document this same fan, but you see him and he's got some brightness in his eyes and he's clean shaven and he's got a really nice haircut and his countenance and his personality is completely different. And the, the person running the documentary says this. He goes, you seem to have changed a lot in the last year. What's happened? You know what he said? He goes, what happened was I watched season one and I didn't like what I saw. And he goes, and I saw a man who was being very self-destructive and was in a very dark place. And I realized I wasn't loving my boys and I wasn't there for them. And he goes, I have dedicated my life. I don't care if people think I'm funny or if I'm smart or if I'm good looking or successful. What people will say about me is that I was a dad that was there for their, his sons. And it showed him he's coaching his kid's soccer team and he's spending more time with them. And he goes, I haven't had a drop of alcohol since I watched that first season. I hope to never have one again because it's not good for me. And it was like, there was a guy that had the humility to look himself in the mirror and say, I don't like what I see. Do you have that same humility? Listen, no one knows the selfish inclinations of your heart more than you do. We get really good at hiding and pretending and, and pretending they don't exist to others, but you know. Where are you choosing yourself? Where are you being self-absorbed? Where are you failing to love? Okay, here's the next thing you need to do, and I don't do this often, but I'm giving out some homework this week. Do me a favor. If you're here and you're married or you're engaged, raise your hand. Okay, that, that's most of the room. Okay, if you just raised your hand, you have homework. Okay, here's the homework. You need to have the conversation. You need to have a conversation with your spouse and it needs to start with this question. Where am I being selfish? In our relationship, where am I failing to love you? Where am I being selfish? All right, and listen to me. If this devolves into both of you getting defensive and getting into a fight, you're doing it wrong. Come with a humble heart and be like, honey, I know myself well, but I also know I have blind spots and I know you know me better than anyone else. What am I not seeing? Where am I being selfish? Where am I failing to love you well? Have that conversation and then go to small group this week and talk about it in split time and ask for prayer and ask for help and ask for accountability. Like, let's get after these things. Okay, and here's the last thing. It's very, very simple. You need to do something. You need to do something. You have an opportunity today, whoever you are with, to choose to elevate 
what's best for them above yourself. You have the opportunity to look at those around you and say, I'm going to love you in a way that's you before me. What can I do for you? What do you need? How can I support you? How can I be there for you? Whether that's kids with parents, whether that's with family, whether that's with friends at a Super Bowl party, make the choice to love. This is what following Jesus looks like. And it is by this all people will know that we belong to him when we love one another well. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this time together. I just thank you for all that you're doing in our church. I thank you for what you're doing in my heart through this passage. Um, this has been a week of conviction. It's been a week of difficulty. But God, um, I know I speak for those of us in this room when I say we don't want people who have it easy. We want to be people who are changed and are transformed. Thank you for doing that. We love you. We need your help. Would you draw near? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.